Hi, I'm Cody Elaine Oliver. I created the popular Black Love docuseries with my husband after seeing the lack of Black people in media and entertainment and happy, loving relationships. We were actually being told there was a Black marriage crisis. So I asked Black people who were married what it takes to make their marriage work. And after more than 200 interviews, I've heard it all. So buckle up and enjoy getting the full story directly from the couples themselves. This is Black Love, The Interviews. Together, over 50 years together, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you more alike or are you more different? It changes mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> Almost every day. We think we're alike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've grown to like each other, which is great, you know. But uh, we're not alike every day. And that's good, you know, because it's something we discover on each other every day. Which is great. Well, there are two different stories about how we met and first saw each other. Um, I was um, junior at Fisk and an honor counselor, so school was just starting, students were just coming, and a lot of people were lost, so it wasn't uncommon for people to stop those people who'd been there and ask, you know, where's this, where's that? And um, so I was coming out of uh, the, I guess, uh, cafeteria, and here was a guy who obviously had just bought this Meharry jacket, obviously because it had, it had the folds in it. You know, it was not anything anybody had ever worn before. And all the guys with him had brand new jackets. And he said, I'm lost. I'm a I'm a freshman at Fisk and where's the men's dorm or something really corny and silly. And I pointed to it and I walked on, you know, because obviously they were there to see who was there and be very cool. And um, so that's the first time I laid eyes on him. I paid absolutely no attention for one year because he kept coming at me like, hey, baby, you know, and that was not acceptable, interesting and very typical of uh, all the other guys in that area. And there were just so many students and so much activity and everybody was trying to hook up. And I wasn't interested in that kind of guy. And the reason you weren't interested is? He was too old. (laughs) (laughs) And you had a boyfriend. And I had a boyfriend. (laughs) You had a boyfriend that went to another school, which was my great advantage. So I told Gail, and I said, you know, she wouldn't say anything to me. She wouldn't date me. So I said, there must be a way I can do this without causing any problems. So I found her walking from the cafeteria with her girlfriend, and I asked them would they like to go to lunch, knowing that the food in the cafeteria in school colleges was just horrible. It's like mystery meat and something else, you know. So I didn't look at her girlfriend. I looked directly into Gail's eyes and asked the two of them what they'd like to go to lunch. So the girlfriend got the hint, and, she, and they said, both said yes, but she said, why don't you go? I'm going to do something else. And I was shocked because Gail got in the car, and we drove off to... Uh, Debris. De- Debris, which was <laughs> a very uh, wonderful place up on mm-hmm. a hill. Mm-hmm. And we, that's significant about uh, Nancy Wilson because when we were there, I said, let me play some music for you. And I went over and I played, I want to be with you by Nancy Wilson. <laughs> and when I came back, Gail was 
Thank I was you. literally shaking in my chair. <laughs> she said, well, I said, what would you like to eat? She said, I'm not hungry. But I knew that was a lie. But I ate cheeseburger, french fries. I, I gulped down everything. So I took her back and I asked her, would she like to go out again? And she said, well, she had a boyfriend. I said, well, too bad, you know, he's not here. But uh, she said she did have a boyfriend and she was going to visit him at homecoming. Yeah. So anyway, that's not quite the way it happened. <laughs> right. That's exactly the way it happened. Right. <laughs> it took a year for him to realize that the hey baby approach wasn't working. So when he did see me come out of the same cafeteria, I was really hungry. And my friend and I were trying to scrape together about a quarter, literally, to go and buy some crackers. It was just that bad. And when he saw me, he stopped his car, he got out, and he said, excuse me, my name is Lewis Wyatt. And, you know, he did it the way he should have done it in the first place, and the way he knew how to do it. But he didn't want to take that time, and I think, you know, trial and error. Um, so that was a year later from that first time. And then we were hungry, and we were going to go together. So I figured, you know, well, we're just going to go to have lunch, and she's going to go. I'll be fine. And then she backed out. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? My eyes told her to do that. I figured, well, you know, he seems tame. We'll just have lunch. And he took me to this place really far. So, it, it uh, you know, I was nervous. And then when he played that particular song... I realized, you know, he had a purpose, and that scared me, so. When did you shake the boyfriend? Oh, well, that's a story. Uh, no, it that's really, a story. Don't, that's don't tell story. that story. Yeah, I gotta tell the story. <laughs> that's a good story. So she told me that she was going away. I asked her to go on a date, and she said she wasn't dating because she had a boyfriend. And I said, but he's so far away, and I'm sure you're lonely here. She said, I'm not dating. So I hooked up with her with her roommate. I found out who her roommate was, and I told her roommate uh, that I'd like to go on a double date with her, with her roommate, which was Gail. And her roommate, I had investigated, had no money, no car, or nothing, so she was ready to go. So she hooked us up, we went out, and Gail told me this was not a date. <laughs> said, yeah, we, you know, we're just going out, have some fun. And so after that, she went to see her boyfriend. While she was gone, I went to town and I bought her a necklace and with a pendant on it. And on the back of the pendant it had Gail Elizabeth Smith Wyatt. <laughs> As I came back, she came back and I gave it to her and she said, boy, are you, what are you doing? I said, well, you know what? You don't have to wear it, but you keep it. And if you, I see you wear it, I know that you're interested in dating. So she took it and uh, no. So that was two weeks after we went to lunch. It wasn't long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Probably about a month after that, yeah. He was very driven, you know, he knew what he wanted to do. He was in medical school, he didn't have any money, but he was always very clean. Uh, I think he had like two shirts, maybe two pairs of pants, one suit, and one heavy coat for the winter. And, you know, he would rotate them, so he always looked, you know, really fastidious. And that was impressive. And I knew he didn't have a lot of money, but he would spend all the money that he had on me. And that made me feel like, you know, this is a guy who has his priorities straight because that was important for me, that he would put aside all the things that he could be interested in at his age, which was 26 at the time, and I was 
I was 18, and um, so, you know, it seemed like he had all of the right ingredients, and I began to be less scared of him, because my mother had told me, all guys want to do is get in your pants. So that's a terrifying message to, you know, to take to college with you. And uh, I was pretty afraid, but he, he didn't seem that way. He was uh, able to slow down, be himself, and let me get to know him. That was important. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that, when you think about a long-term relationship, and you remember back in those days what you would do to be with that one that you wanted to be with, that's important because it lets you know how much passion you had to be together at that time. So I would spend all my money and go over and buy her a fish sandwich and something to drink mm -hmm. and take it over to her dorm. And all of her little roommates would say, here comes Burger King, here comes Burger Boy. And I would give it to him. Later she told me they all ate it. She didn't eat it by herself. Yeah, we cut it up in little pieces. And I was, I was in the dorm starving away. I know. <laughs> With no money. So you think back of those times about how can I get those times back? on a daily basis, because those are great times. Mm -hmm. You know, when I saw her, she had class, and I wanted someone with class. I knew she was smart. And and people don't believe this, but when I first looked into her eyes and held her and looked in her eyes, I saw the mother of my kids. And that just did it for me. And mm -hmm. I said, I want this to be my wife. Hmm. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't long, so uh, yeah, it was about a, not even a year. It was less yeah. than a year we got less than engaged. A year. By eleven months, we were we were married. It wasn't a long engagement. It wasn't a long dating. It was fast because he wanted to. Well, he was he was going into another year of school. I was getting ready to go away for my PhD. I had my life plan, and in order for him to get me to stay in town, he knew he had to marry me because I wasn't going to stay in Nashville and, you know, not be married to him. Yeah. So that kind of sped up the whole process. Where did you end up going? UCLA. I did slow down and I didn't go to get my doctorate from, I was going to Michigan at the time and I was all set and everything. And, then I met him, so I did change my plans, and then we had our first child in Nashville. So uh, I got my master's instead of my doctorate, and our son was three months old when I got my master's degree, and he graduated from Meharry. So we thought we were ready to go. Ready to tackle the world, mm -hmm. huh? Yeah. With a little baby. Well, well, I'll tell you a funny story. That's just sum it up for you. So. We actually came back to Los Angeles to get married. And we went back and, and I found a complex of apartments. And I talked to one, two, three, four, four of my friends and said, let's all move over there off the dorm. They were all married. So we moved over there. So while we were living there, everybody was a housewife except Gail. Gail was still in school and running around. So she didn't fit with that group as much. So she was a little uncomfortable there. So we moved out of the complex over to a, another complex. It was about three doors down. Mm -hmm. And we met Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry were two interesting mice who would come out <laughs> and watch Gail sit and study at her mm -hmm. table. Mm -hmm. And she would scream and I would go in and run Tom and Jerry away. And I put, I put down mice traps 
to catch Tom and Jerry. I could never catch those little suckers. We were feeding them. <laughs> they were getting fat <laughs> off the cheese I would put in the mash. And Gil was just, finally Gil just accepted them. They were just part of the family. So that was, that was really interesting as we progressed along in our marriage. Mm -hmm. And so Gail was cooking the traditional um, Los Angeles stuff. Uh, you know, tacos and enchiladas. <laughs> enchiladas. <laughs> and I was getting fat. And um, we were struggling. And I remember to see in my senior year, I said, Gail, I can't study anymore. I, you know, we had pediatrics, that final coming up. I said, I'm just tired. I can't study anymore. She said, if you don't get yourself up out of that bed and go study, mm -hmm. we've got a We've got a child, and we're getting ready to go out and fight the world. I got some tea, and I got up, and I studied, and I actually got a, uh, an A on that on that final, which was interesting. So I knew then this was my partner. She made me. No, I, you know, I, I think it was it was a lot. It was a lot of living from somebody who'd been very protected, and I was not poor when I got married. That was the poorest I'd ever been. I absolutely was just uh, amazed at what you can do when you have no money. Uh, but we had a lot of dreams. We, we shared that part. We were very committed to our professions and we were committed to each other. And I think, you know, it was okay. We popped popcorn so we'd fill ourselves up. We never ate to fill ourselves. There was never enough food. And we, everything went to our baby, you know, to make sure he was okay. But it was a lot of living, and I don't think I even had time to breathe. I was determined in those days, they didn't like pregnant women to go to class because they thought it was a bad example for other young women. And I just thought, well, I'm married. Well, what do you want from me? You know, So a lot of people didn't speak to me that had known me in college because I was at the same place, you know, same school. But um, I just, you know, I was lonely. My friends wanted to see me, but they, they had no car. So Lewis would go and pick them up, and the, he'd tell them to be on the corner, and he'd pick them all up and bring them to our little apartment, and we'd laugh and talk, and I could be myself again, and then he'd take them back to the dorm. And so it was so hard. I was too young for the other married women, and I was pregnant with the undergrads and the other students. I really didn't fit in. But not fitting in became a template for the rest of my life. I really never have fit in. I've always been different in terms of what I wanted. In the social clubs in Los Angeles, the women were very different from me. They weren't working usually. They were married to a doctor. I wasn't interested in talking about clothes and shoes and whatever. I was wanted to talk about what I'd read or what I was doing or what my work was involving. And after we talked about the children, I had nothing else to share. So I got used to being by myself and having my little friends, but not necessarily around me. And that, that just was something that I used when I was at UCLA. It didn't fit in there. Only African-American to get my PhD at that time. And Certainly, they didn't understand how I could be married to a doctor. Why was I getting a PhD? What was I going to do with it? It was like a hobby. They didn't understand. I, I had my purpose. So, you know, we've always stayed on course. He did what he wanted to do, and I supported him. He supported me while I did what I wanted to do. But let me just tell you about uh, This is an interesting thing. See, Gail tells you all the factual stuff. I tell you the stuff I thought was important. So... We were starving down in Nashville because we had no money. 
And uh, I was doing very well in medical school. So one of the professors said, you can come over at night and you can wash my uh, flats and all my equipment. So Gail would come with me and we'd go out there washing it, go back and then she'd go to sleep and I'd have to study. So I said, well, this is not working. And I had, from a young child, I had learned how to shoot pool very well. And uh, we had a contest at Meharry that was a pool contest, shooting pool. And I won the contest. I said, well, you know what? I can go out. And there was another guy who was in my class who we would always play pool together. I said, we can, we can really go out and make some money. And so I convinced him and we would go out and we, we would play pool together, just missing everything and spending all the money we had, $2, $5. And people would come in because they thought they could beat us. Well, we would make money from them. We got ran out on a lot of pool walls. But the money I made, I used to give Gil a... A what? Party. Oh. <laughs> an engagement party. And so we did have some money. We didn't have a lot of money, but that's how I got the money there. So it was really interesting. Uh, well, it was uh, interesting because... I was married to a pool shark uh, who was also in medical school, and I couldn't tell my mother because she would not have approved of that. Uh, so he would just take whatever we had, a dollar, two dollars, and he would gamble it up to whatever we needed. So when we had our son, we didn't have enough to pay his bill in the hospital, and they notified Lewis that he couldn't graduate unless they paid. The, we paid the bill, and it was $75. So, <laughs> you know, that sounds like such a small amount of money today. But in those days, it was a lot because we didn't have it. So I gave him what I had, and he was out most of the night. But he came back with $75, and we proudly went up to the hospital and paid our little bill. And we said, now our son is ours, you know. <laughs> well, you know, put it in perspective. Gasoline that time was 25 cents a gallon. It was 25 cents a gallon. gallon. We'll never see that again. (laughs) I was expecting to be very conservative. My mother had told me to interview women who married doctors before I got married. So I'd have an idea of what my life would be like. And so I interviewed three or four women who were her friends. And all of them were alone when I interviewed them. It was at night. Their kids were in bed, and they were alone in these big houses with big cars outside. And I clearly got the message that they were lonely, that this was a a lonely life. You know, they had a lot of things, but the relationships were not there. And I was very worried. I knew that that wasn't what I wanted at all. But I I got the sense that I needed to be um, conservative in the sense that I needed to cook and I needed to know how to take care of a house and and my children. Well, I had my eyes on, you know, being a professional woman, but my mother was a professional woman. So I figured I could do what she did. She worked, she cooked breakfast and dinner before she took us to school. So she was an amazing role model. And I knew I had to work really, really hard. So I was ready for that. But that role model did not work for me actually as a married woman. I was bored by the cooking. It was something my mother did. I didn't want to do it. And I knew that I didn't want to gain a lot of weight. So I knew the less I smelled and saw, the better off I'd be. And we didn't have any money to buy any food anyway. So uh, it was funny. I, I wasn't a very good cook. I still don't like to cook a lot. I cook more. But that part, I love being with my kids and my husband, but the 
the model of being a conservative wife was not the one I lived. What did you think of that? I was, I was total control. I wanted to stay home and be a housewife like my mother was. Take care of the kids, take care of the house, take care of me when I came <laughs> home. Let me go out and bring the bacon home. You know, I was going out there and catch and feed and bring home all the bacon and, and Gail would be home waiting for me with my slippers and my, and my gown and you know, my food. That never worked. <laughs> I found out immediately that this was not going to last if I continued trying to be controlled. Gail is not the person you control, which is interesting because we have a cousin named Tommy Hawkins who played for the Los Angeles Lakers. He just died. And um, I remember him saying to me once, he said, uh, do you know who you married? I said, yeah, I married your cousin. She's, and she's wonderful. So let me tell you about your, who you married. So we, we were little, we were in Gary, Indiana, and we were in this large lot and we would play, all the cousins would get together and play baseball. And of course, Gail was the smallest one there. And so when she would come up to bat, and we'd pitch and say, okay, now take it easy on her. Don't throw the ball too hard. She's not going to hit it far. So people would now feel we're sitting down. So Gail swung that ball back and knocked the ball over the fence. <laughs> they watched as she rounded it. He said, you have no idea who you married. I said, well, I'm going to find out. <laughs> I'm definitely going to find out. So control was not an issue. I was not going to be able to control this relationship. I had to share this relationship. And I learned how to do that. When I was going through my internship and residency, and I was one of the 15 uh, physicians uh, in the country that was selected to go to NIH, and so I was at the University of Maryland rotating through NIH, and I said uh, to Gail, this is great because now you can stay home, we're in Maryland, and Gail said, I don't want to stay home. So Gail went out on her own and got a job, and she got a job. As a psychologist. As a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And she called me one day and she said, um, I can't find my car. Well, it had snowed while she was at work. And although she knew where she had, where she had parked, she couldn't find the car because it was covered with snow. So I said, aha, I can exhibit my control. <laughs> so I drove down there, wiping off all the cars. And I decided, you know what, this is not what I want. She needs to be able to control her life. She can find a car. I don't have to come down here and find a car. And from that moment on, I said, you know, you're on your own. You can do <laughs> what you want, and she is. So that was interesting. Can you imagine going through as cold as it gets in Maryland, pushing that snow off every car, trying to find the right car? <laughs> but I think it, 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 it didn't take long to realize that if I was going to be happy, I needed to be who I was. And I was young to get married, and I think the only way it could work is if he was able to allow me to be who I was and to grow up. So I literally grew up in marriage. And then I became a different person uh, than he met initially. I wasn't insecure. I wasn't so afraid. I knew what I wanted and he needed to back off and let me control my life. And I'm, it wasn't a matter of letting me, really. It was a matter of accepting the fact that I was going to be a very strong person. I was a strong person when he met me. I was just young. Mm -hmm. And I think that realization was painful because he was more like a big brother and a dad when we married. And I guess I needed that, but I didn't need it long. Um, but that strong, uh, confident, 
um, reliant person is the person that attracted me. And he was always that. He just needed to realize the control issue was not working. So I had to take off my hat when I came home and learn how to share things. So I don't mind washing dishes. I don't mind sharing the household duties. I don't mind cooking if I have to cook. And that was something new for me. My dad never did that, ever. He'd come home and he'd everything going for him. And I realized that, you know, my happiness was not my dad's happiness. Mm -hmm. I had to make a new happiness for myself mm -hmm. and with Gail. And if I were going to be happy with Gail and we were going to have a long-term relationship, I need to know how to share and let go and, and relinquish the control over her. And I did. And it wasn't painful. It Actually, it was easy. You know, I, didn't, I thought it was going to be painful. I, said, I don't want to wash any dishes. I don't even want to take out the garbage. But I did all that, you know. And now I clean up, I wash the dishes. I come home early, I'll cook, you know, there's food here. So it's, it's, a, it's a great life. We have uh, two things that we do together that's really nice. We do Pilates together twice a week. We, we walk most of the time together to walk the dogs. We have two dogs that were left by my daughter, and so we take care of them. And, um, and I don't walk every morning because I get up and I make excuses and I say I have to go someplace. But I do walk with Gail, and it's, it's, it's wonderful because then we have a time to enjoy each other and talk to each other. And, you know, interestingly about a relationship, it's not a smooth ride. It's ups and downs. And then you get to know that person who you're with on a different basis. And let me tell you something, women can change every day. <laughs> they can be one way today and tomorrow they're a different way, you know. And it's so amazing that if you talk to them and you listen to what they say, then you understand the changes that they're making. And well, you I, either have to accept well, them or not. I think one of the things that I, we both had to learn was that you should communicate all the time with your partner. My parents didn't talk a lot to each other when they were upset. And I think that was a bad model because actually when you're upset, you really need to explain what is it that you're upset about? Where did the other person go wrong? How can they uh, mend the fences? What needs to change? And I think we had to learn how to keep talking to each other. And when I have a problem, I have to communicate with him. I want you to listen. I don't want to hear you prescribe a medication on script. This is not a medical problem. I just want you to listen. Because he would try to fix it immediately. You know, well, you need to do this. Oh, oh, I'm going to fix it. I just want you to support me. And or I wanted to know, what did he think? If, you, if I want to know what he thinks, I have to say, listen. Now I want your feedback. I want all positive feedback first, and then I want to hear the constructive criticism. So I literally tell him how I can hear him. If he just starts in on me like he does at the office, uh, like I'm a patient, I can't hear that. And so you really do have to make those adjustments when you walk in the door. And I know I have to do the same. He's not my therapy patient. He could be. But he's not. And I, whatever little gym I've got for him, he's, he's got to not know it until he can hear it. Well, but that's the reason I laugh about that is because if I come home and Gil wants to tell me something I really don't want to hear, we have this deal to say, okay, park this in the parking lot. I will be back and I will be ready at 9 o'clock tonight and I'll be wide open and you can tell me whatever you want to tell me. But right now, I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to watch the game. I'm going to have fun. You know? And it works. Yeah. Well, when I learned that I had to stay in the moment with Gail, 
In other words, when Gail was doing something, I couldn't wander off. I couldn't wander out of the room. I couldn't go anyplace. I had to stop, pay attention to her, and stay in the moment. And staying in the moment is hard with a psychiatrist. I'm a psychologist. That's why I, that, and that's why I tell her all the time. She's a psychiatrist. Because she will psychoanalyze me, and I'm losing. And I don't like to lose. I like to win the battle. So I'll say, okay, we need to stop this right now. I'll come back. I'll be ready to talk later. She doesn't like that, but she'll do that for me. But have you hit a, do you think you've hit a stride in your marriage? No. Mm -mm. Is it possible? For periods of time. And I think people have an expectation that if you're married a long time, you've worked everything out. You've just been married a long time. Um, and I think in our couples group, we realize that um, you know, every day is new. That person has changed. That's not the person that was there yesterday. And you need to review with that person for that day what you need and where you are. Um, and it's really okay to have to review things or to fall off the wagon. And one of the other, you know, the other person has gone back to old patterns of watching television all day and not never moving and never talking and just wanting to veg out without saying, I just want to veg out. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to help you. I don't want to talk. Um, and can I do that? Can you just accept that? And I can say yes, or I can say, well, not the whole day. Give me like 10 minutes at night or something and negotiate it, you know, before instead of letting it boil into a problem, the thing you don't know how to resolve. So one of the things that was so interesting, wait a minute, let me just say this. One of the things, on our couples group, we had a retreat in Las Vegas where the men decided we were going to remarry our wives. And so this was fun until we got there and realized this was real marriage. And we had to get a ring. We had to buy the buy the uh, uh, the thing to get married again. And you know we had bought the that when we got married. I think it cost me about twenty five dollars. It cost a hundred dollars up there. The ring. We got some little paper rings, but they still cost. And then we had someone who came in who married us all. It was a wonderful experience. So then we took our brides and we celebrated again like on our honeymoon. That was a great experience. The reason it was a great experience to me is because it made me realize again how much I adored Gil and how much I wanted Gil to be in my life. It sort of took me back to the first time that I got on my knees at Fish University and said, will you marry me? And she said yes. And I gave her a ring that I had already gotten and uh, it didn't fit. <laughs> we were... Um concerned like a lot of African-American couples are about the rates of divorce in the community, in the African-American community. And um, Lewis's parents uh, were together their entire lives. They were married young and uh, died within two months of each other. They literally were each other's soulmates. Um, my parents divorced after 19 years of marriage, just at the time when uh, my sister was going to college and then I was yet to go. So uh, I knew that having a good marriage was not easy, but you never saw it on television. You never saw it in the movies. And many of my parents' friends, so in essence, we really felt it important to um, create a, a network of couples who were married, who were making that commitment, who wanted good marriages, healthy marriages, and wanted to support each other in that effort because there, it just wasn't apparent. And um, so in 1990, we brought about um, 
45. 45 couples, 50 couples together in our backyard, and we talked about what was going on in the community. And everybody agreed that something needed to be done, so we talked about creating a group. And anybody who was interested, we didn't know what it was going to be like. All we knew was that we needed to do something, and that marriage was that special that we we thought we had to fight for it. And we wanted to be good role models for ourselves, for our children, for our community. And people signed up, so we had no clue as to what this could be. But then we brought those couples together and we created uh, rules around who was going to be in it, how long you had to be married. At that time, it was three years. And um, all of the couples, I think, were African-American, maybe except one couple. We couldn't even figure that out. And maybe today we'd do that differently. Maybe both don't need to be African-American. That may not be the most essential part of it. But the important part was that it wasn't done anywhere. And uh, all the couples were really, really excited about what we could make this. So being a psychologist, I thought we should have a facilitator and have a retreat once a year. So I had a bunch of friends who were really great at this kind of thing. And so we decided that the group would have a retreat, a three-day retreat, someplace, either in L.A. or outside. So we've been all over the place. And um, the facilitator comes in, and we really work on those marriages. And uh, over time, this, the group is, what, 27 years old. Um, we've seen people pass away. We've seen couples that became extremely ill. People have gotten divorces. People have gotten divorces and remarried and wanted to get back in to the group. Uh, we've had all permutations of life occurring, and it's just been a wonderful experience to have that kind of support. What do you think? We have one couple who actually um, went to South Africa and came back for the retreat every year mm-hmm. until they got a divorce. Our divorce rate is less than 5%, which is, ex- 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 I mean, you don't hear about that in African-American couples. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because we work on our relationships. At the retreat, you have to work on your relationship. We made, at the beginning, this is not a therapy group. So you don't, if you want to get in for therapy, you're not going to make it. So you come in because you want to strengthen your relationship, not because you want to stop from getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. It's been wonderful and a great relationship. And yes, Harold and, and his wife are, are members of it. Do both of you think that you still have an interest right? An interest in being married? You said that you haven't hit your stride. And that- oh, yeah. Um, no, I don't think we've hit our stride. I don't think we ever will. And, and I think if we do, it'll become boring to us. We mm-hmm. need to discover each other every day. Mm-hmm. We need to find what makes us tick tomorrow. So when we get up tomorrow morning, I'll do the same thing, but we'll find something different. When I get up in the morning, I make a smoothie for us, and we drink that, and we talk about the day we make our plans. We're actually going to speak at the end of this um, month to the National uh, uh, Links. They're meeting in San Francisco. So Gail's a keynote speaker, and I'm talking about some laser things on their panel. And that's going to be interesting because I'll hear Gail speak again. I'll be in the audience, and she'll hear me talk about things to these 400 or 500 people that are going to be there. It's going to be an interesting meeting. Our daughter died of cancer um, almost four years ago, and um, it was a huge life change for all of us, our entire family. But... um, Though it's been a very painful 
experience to lose a child. I, I would agree with anyone who says losing a child is unique. It's, it's the most painful experience I think you could ever have. There was a beauty to it um, in that we, I feel, I won't speak for Lewis, um, I was very privileged to have her in my life, uh, to be her mom. Uh, and we just had a, we've had a wonderful life. And I think part of being um, this age and to be married this long, you realize nothing lasts forever. And uh, you have to grow to the point where you can accept that, that you, children come through you. They don't get born to you. And that's really true of my husband and anybody else I meet. And if I can keep that level of acceptance. I think it's a lot easier to let people go when they when they have to. But letting her go wasn't that easy. I mean, no. it was a very painful time. You know? mm -hmm. And um, she was the most courageous person I've ever known. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the things she went through, she was diagnosed with colon cancer, was supposed to die within a year. She lasted about five and a half years. Six years. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because we were going every place doing every kind of thing. And then she, and she said at the end, she said, I'm ready to go now. She said, well, I can't do this anymore. And I think her main regret was that she was leaving her daughter. Mm -hmm. We told her, we'll take care of your daughter. And boy, have we taken care of her daughter. Mm -hmm. Oh, her daughter's a sophomore at Spelman. Oh, my God. And she's seen the people come out on the line now. And so she's just excited right now. And we kept the two dogs that my daughter had. So we had those two dogs in the back. Um, and they've been uh, great companions. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it, you don't have children? We do. We have a one-year-old. Oh, my oh, goodness. Nice. Congratulations. <laughs> well, one of my close friends just died. Um, she was an OBGYN. And I was at a memorial event for her. And that's what I said. One, Part of my speech was that, you know, when we're born, we cry and the world rejoices. And when we die, the world cries and we rejoice if we live the right type of life. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to live the right type of life all the time. And that's what we're trying to give to our granddaughter. You know you need to live the right type of life so that when you die, the world will cry. I think I've really been impressed with legacy and what we've gotten from our parents. We have great parents, um, divorced or not, they all were extremely talented people, very committed, and they loved us no matter what. So while marriage is great, it's not great for everyone and it's not great for your whole life. And I think the hardest thing is to realize when it works and you've worked on it and it still doesn't work, that you need to do something to survive and to be happy again. So for some people, getting a divorce is the best thing that they can do. Um, and for others, um, working on it all the time and understanding it's not, there's nothing permanent about it. Um, that you've got to keep your game up. You can't say everything that you want to say that comes off the top of your head. And I tell Lewis that, you know, I, I can't hear that. Uh, you have to kind of fix that up. Uh, it's so easy when you see somebody all the time, you think you can just say whatever, but you can't. He's sensitive and he's got good and bad days and things 
that he's very sensitive about that maybe I don't even know on that particular day. And then other days I can make a joke about it and he'll laugh. So, you know, you're always sort of tipping. It's not like you're just there and you can just hang out. Marriage is a very delicate, fragile experience. And if you want that person, I think, to thrive, you've got to care for them. And that's more than just fixing food and washing clothes. That's really understanding their vulnerabilities, things that have hurt them in the past, things they think they're good at. You want to, you know, pump up and make them feel good when they can. And and you expect that back. It's not a one-way street. And I think I've learned a lot about learning to, to balance, uh, balance myself, balance my marriage, balance hopefully what I can give to Lewis. And, uh, it's, it's been, it's an, edu- an educational experience. One of the things I said earlier was that you learned something about um, your mate all the time. Mm-hmm. The first thing I learned about Gail was that when we were dating, she would laugh at all my jokes. And I thought, <laughs> well, I could be a comedian. <laughs> then after we got married, I would have to explain my jokes and maybe she would laugh for them. The next thing I learned about her was that Gail loves to go to movies, but her movies she'd like to go to are the movies I don't want to see. Those movies like Dancing with the Wind. I want to see the shoot 'em ups and you know all the bad things. We just saw uh, Marshall, which was great. I thought I, that was a great movie. And we both enjoyed that. So I'm learning every day more things about her, and she liked Marshall also. We have a we have a great group of friends now, so there's no loneliness there. We have in couples, I mean, we really care about one another. It's really a closely knit organization. And you're a sex therapist, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. what, com- what kind of conversations are you having, either with, I don't know if you're having them with couples or with mm-hmm. individuals that come to see you, but like... Mm-hmm. What do I talk about? Yeah. Well, what they come for, and they usually come because they're not communicating, they're not having sex, um, usually they can't have children, they're having trouble. Um, many times it's infidelity is a huge uh, wound and they've not been able to get around it. Or You never get over anything, but I think people come in thinking that you can get over something and you can't. You carry everything with you. So those are the things that we work on. And as a sex therapist, I focus first on the health of the relationship, which is sort of what we're talking about now. Uh, If a person is not in a healthy relationship, they don't know how to balance and share, respect each other for being individuals, I won't do sex therapy with them. I don't want to make people have great sex and they don't have a great relationship. If they're casual partners, that's a different outcome. But if they are committed to each other, then they have to be committed without the sex first. And then the sex is so much better uh, when they can do that, when they can make that commitment. Most of the women who come to my office uh, don't really have an illness. They come because they're lonely and they can spend time talking to me. So I have a great relationship with my patients and I can refer them to Gail because, you know, they need therapy. But they come because... They say that they have this pain here, and you go, you really don't have a pain. Why are you here today? You know, and they talk about, well, you know, he did this and he did that. So I get into a lot of that in my office. So when we were um, first married, Gail was, came and said, I think I want to be a sex therapist. I said, all right, fine, whatever. Doesn't matter with me. So she invited me to go with her 
to some of the courses that you took. Those were weird courses, let me tell you. We went to San Francisco one time, <laughs> and they put us in a room and turned off all the lights and said, now get a mate and go with the mate, and we're going to tell you what to do. And I'm looking for Gil. I said, Gil's got to be around here someplace. Finally, we found each other because we were not going to have another mate. You know? So we did that. And so it was interesting. I've learned that um, marriage for me is an interconnection. It's not a oneness that I think I've enjoyed, but being connected to someone when I want to be connected to them and having that freedom to not be connected to them when I really just need to be me is, is really nice. And the fact that it works in our marriage, we had to work very hard at that. We have been into therapy a couple of times to try to find that balance, to forgive each other uh, for things that uh, I think we both did or said that um, just didn't get forgotten because everything you say is like written in stone, especially if it's hurtful. Um, so we had to learn how to forgive and forget, but not forget the things that we really are sensitive about. Uh, I don't like to laugh at things that I'm sensitive about. I don't like to be laughed at. And I don't think Lewis does either. Um, he doesn't like me to talk about his parents. Um, and I've made jokes that I knew hurt him because he loved them. And I could see them in a different light. I know he liked to talk about my parents. I don't, I'm not having that either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just, it's, it's like many stones out there and you just have to learn to step on the right ones. Well, what I've learned, um, which I thought was really important for me is that, you know, as a teenager growing up, sex was the most important thing for me. And I wanted to get them, grab them and take care of them. And then I learned intimacy is even better. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talked about in couples was beyond intimacy. Beyond intimacy is things when you do things that really hurt and you do it on purpose to hurt your spouse, then you have to come back from that. Let's be honest, that's hard to do. So you got to get the closeness in there, and closeness doesn't always include sex. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that you have to understand that person and know that person, and you have to be able to get under that person's skin so that you're close enough that they can accept you the way you are. But not get on their last nerve. Right. There's a difference. Right. <laughs>